Good morning, my name is Karen and I'll be doing our Bible reading this morning from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors had been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this... I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. That's excellent. Thank you, Karen. And good morning, folks. I'm Etienne, and yes, also welcome from me. If, uh, if the, today's your first time, good to have you at church, good to have you with us at Pathway. Uh, and I will get to talk for the next, I don't know how long today, I have an extra hour today. <laughs> so you never know. Uh, <laughs> we're wrapping up quite a number of weeks that we as a church work through a part of the Bible that is called Acts. And um, yeah, this is where we'll leave it for 
I don't know, probably another year or so, and then we'll get back to it again. So please come with me as I take us through the, the events that Karen read to us of. Uh, there's a fair bit going on there, and I really want to make it as clear as possible, but I do ask for your, uh, your, your extra concentration today, I guess, as we work through uh, some of these things uh, that go on in this chapter. Let me start by asking you a question. Uh, I don't know if you have ever had to make a decision of whether or not you would like to become a member of a church, whether that's this local church or whether it's other local churches that you may have belonged to in the past or, or maybe you're new to church. Church is entirely new for you and, and you've had to figure out and maybe have to figure out uh, should, I, sh- should I get baptised? Should I become a Christian? Should I become a part of the church? I know the church has lots of local congregations, but it's also somehow connected and can be said that it's a big church. What should I do? Like, what, what are the entry requirements? If I want to be a member of the church, what should I do? I... I that's, that's the question that people often wrestle with. That's the question that the church from the earliest times had to wrestle with. That's what they had to wrestle with in this chapter that we just read. The question is, what does a person have to do to be a part of God's church? Everybody's welcome. We've been there already in this Acts series, if you've listened to the past one. And even in this story, nobody questions that anyone is welcome But what should they do to say, yeah, I'm a member? That's a very good question. (laughs) Very good question. Question that we need to clarify perhaps again for ourselves today. Maybe it's the first time you get this. Maybe you've come to church for a very long time, but you didn't quite get it. So let me take us through this. Here's what the issue looked like for the church. Some people said, there and then, and this is where you need to stay with me, that anyone's welcome to the church, but what they need to do to get in is they need to do two things. Males need to get circumcised. I trust you know what that means. And then there's a lot of um, rules, laws, that were given to God's people, the Jewish race, from whom we got Jesus, right? So they're a very important people group in God's plans for all of history. That God gave them to obey and adhere to for thousands of years through a very significant leader in their past, a man called Moses. Get circumcised, obey everything that Moses told us to do. You do all these things and you get to be a member of the church. This is what we must expect, right? This is what... The push was from within the church. This comes from a very long part of their history. I'm going to read this for you. This is my covenant, God says, in the first book of the Bible. For the generations to come, and you should keep this, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household, and also those who are not your offspring. In other words, anyone who's from outside the Jewish race are welcome, as long as they get circumcised. Right? And if they don't do this, they'll be cut off from these people. 
At another part, very early on in the Bible, be careful to do, do sorry, what the Lord your God has commanded you. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Circumcision, I should say this here because it's going to come in later. This is where I want you to stay with me. It's a weird thing for God to ask people to do. Very weird for us. What it has to do with is it has to do with moral cleansing, believe it or not. I got home from a camping trip a few weeks ago. It was a boys' trip. We were fishing. And we didn't shout. <laughs> I got home after four days, pining for my wife. And I said, honey, it's so good to see you. And she said, nah, <laughs> go away. <laughs> you look grace, you smell grace. Clean up. <laughs> and then I'll give you a hug. Okay, Christian faith, you and I, humanity is morally not clean. The God who lives and created us is. He wants to embrace us. He wants you to know him. He wants to know you. But we've got to be clean. There's no relationship with him outside of being clean. And, and so... And so this is a huge issue in the relationship that people have with God. And in the Old Testament, the symbol or the sign, if you like, of being morally clean that God gives his people is, is circumcision. And, and it's somewhat deliberately so. It, 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 it metaphorically represents, you know, um, moral uncleanness, but also bloodshed. And that's why he gives it to them. Hold on to that with me, for me, and then we're going to take that into what happens now in the rest of this chapter. Some people are saying, in the early church, this is what God gave us, this is what we should do. From time to time, we have welcome lunches here at Pathway. We talk to people, we say, this is who we are as a church, and this is what we would like you to do as a church. You may have been to some if you started to come to Pathway in the last number of years. From a distance, this is more or less what it looks like. It's very dangerous for us to read this form the wrong way. It says, my commitment to pathway, then it has a little bit of a three lines underneath that heading, and then a number of bullet points that follows the line that says, I agree to participate in Pathway to Life's mission by, and here are some of these things, attending church faithfully, acting in love towards other members, speaking the truth in love at all times, um, being equipped to serve, live a godly life, give financially regularly, I want to invite others to be part of the church, and so forth. We can read this form as do these things and you can be a member of the church. I mean, this is the sort of problem that this early church faced. Get circumcised, obey all the laws of Moses, 
and you get to be part of the church. Still a live issue for today. It's still a confusing issue for people. If I was to ask you, what do you have to do to be a member of this church? I'll get a lot of different answers. A lot of confusion. A lot of uh, misguidance, perhaps, about the issue. And, and so... That's it. That's the, that's the issue that this church faces. And now we get to move on to look at, okay, well, how did they respond? What did they do? This is going to give us six things. I'm not going to deal with all of them at length. Some of them tell us not directly the answer of what you need to do to be a member of the church. Some of them tells us also about how did they go about getting to the answer. We can learn from their process. And we can learn the answer to the very question itself. So come with me. Let's make a crack into it. Uh, response number one. Here's what we learned from how they responded to this question. They really wanted to deal with this question in a way that kept the church together. We read in the Bible passage that these people, the question is, over in this place called Antioch, right? So Paul and Barnabas went to all these places the last few weeks. We looked at all that. Actually, no, they didn't go this far. But now they're back in Antioch. And there are some people from Jerusalem who comes up and says, you should be circumcised, obey all the laws, then you get to be part of the church. How far is Antioch from Jerusalem? Take a guess. Just yell it out. bit less. A bit fewer, a bit lower. Lower, lower, keep going. Keep going until we get to 400. <laughs> there you have it. Okay. 400 kilometers that you have to walk. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'll go the shortcut. It's not a short trip. It's, it's probably, I don't know, four to six weeks of expense, of effort, let alone the emotional toll of the disagreement. You read in that early chapter, they were in sharp dispute. If I was in Antioch and this started to happen and people come from here and say, oh, love the stuff that happened all the way over here. Isn't it incredible what God is doing? But hey, you know what? There's a bit of a problem. They actually should be all circumcised. You know what I would have been tempted to do? Stuff you. <laughs> Clearly God is that we have no time for this. We have bigger fish to fry. This is, this is a hold up. You know, um, we've got to move on. But they didn't do that. They, 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 I think quite commendably in Antioch said this is important. This church ought to be united. We ought to put considerable effort into getting the answer to this very important question because if they didn't get it, it would have affected us today, 2,000 years down the line. They recognised that. They said this is critically important. We've got to deal with this well and we've got to deal with this together so we will go to Jerusalem. We'll go sort this out. I, I just think it's so easy for us in churches today to often say, you know what? I disagree with you, you disagree with me over some issue, 
the church is big enough for you to function over there and I'll function over here and we don't have to deal with stuff. I, I once had it in the church two people who wanted to get their babies baptised but they wouldn't do it on the same day because they didn't like each other. It's horrible. It's horrible. Churches across the scope of human history, Andrew rightly pointed out, there really should be one church on earth. We've really, really messed this up. Now, I'm not ignorant of the realities of human sin and imperfection and brokenness. I'm not unaware that at times it's best to place distance between individuals or churches and you've got to break away and separate. But I will say this, it always, always ought to be a last resort. We always must first walk the 400 kilometres. We must allow it the time. We must go through the effort. We must make every effort, as Andrew rightly said, to keep the unity. It's so precious, so important, and modelled to us so well in how these people respond to this critical question. Not all issues are the same, but the important ones, unity. Seek unity over them. That's the first thing we get from the from the response. Uh, number two, um, I love how we see the role of church leadership in this decision. It's apostles and elders who the whole church looked to and says, look, we've got to sort this out. Godly leadership needs to play a role here. Note, as a side note, the importance of elders in this decision. In fact, note that the final verdict is laid down by James, an elder, not the apostles. If churches are going to be united, and if you are a church leader or a ministry leader, your role in promoting unity in your ministry or your church and across churches is critical. If we are following leaders, our role is to submit to them as far as they are in Christ's designs. Unity and godly leadership go together. It's modelled here. I think it's pretty clear. We, we see it exercised wonderfully in the early church. So that's the second thing we get, and then I want to move to the third thing, and that has to do with the actual answer of um, what should I do to be a member? Did you notice... The first guy that gets up is one of the apostles. His name's Peter. And this would be after some hours of debate. I don't doubt that. And eventually he gets up and he starts to say, what's on the screen behind me? I might just read it again, just for our own memory. Imagine the scene here sitting with a lot of people around the table. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, who didn't grow up with any of the history of God, that they, they might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit 
to them just as he did to us. If you were here when we dealt with Acts chapter 10, this is what you now need to bring to mind. The man named Cornelius, in whose house Peter went, who he, (laughs) it was almost like he didn't even want to be there. It's almost like if he could have had his way, he would have had everybody circumcised and obeyed the law of Moses to be members of the church. But then he, he goes there, he tells them about Jesus. They start to believe in him. And God moves into their lives. They're filled with the Spirit. Just like we've seen, if you can recall the whole story of Acts in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 10. And his conclusion is, if this is what God has done for them, without having been circumcised, without having obeyed the laws of Moses, what can we possibly add? What can, we possibly, what can they possibly still need in terms of being in a living relationship with God other than that? And so his conclusion is simply this. God did not discriminate between Jewish people and Gentile people, for he purified their hearts by faith. Notice his words. Purified. These people are in a living relationship because they're clean. God is giving them a hug because they're clean. How are they clean? The blood that needed to be shed for them was shed. Jesus' blood. Their faith in Jesus is cleaning them, morally cleaning them. They are no more no more sin-stained, clean enough to be welcomed and accepted by God. And so he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. Here's the kicker. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we, we are saved just as they are. Okay. Can I get back to us? How does this help us? Should you be a member of the church? What should you do? What are the conditions? Let me spell it out. I want to make it really easy and really hard. Here's what you need to be able to say for yourself, I think. I sense that the living God is drawing me to have a relationship with himself. And I want to know him. It's going to be an interest in us to say, I think God himself is drawing me. I'm interested in God. I want to know him. This is what God does. That's what grace means. And if you read even this chapter in Acts, God is the active ingredient. He's the one who's drawing these Gentiles. Is he drawing you? Do you sense in yourself a desire? I want to know God. I'm very confused about what it all means, but I want to know him. Strangely, I suspect that he is the answer to what I need in life. I understand that I'm a sinful person and I cannot know him who is sinless while my sins are not dealt with. And I understand that in his love for me, 
God's Son, Jesus, died to pay the price of the punishment for my sin, and he was raised to life. If I accept his sacrifice in my place, God will accept me. I can begin to stand in a living, life-giving relationship with this God who I suspect is drawing me to him. Now, you may still have a lot of questions about a lot of stuff. But if you can say these things, you should be a member of God's church. Faith. I believe. I love that song that we sang just before here. If you could sing that song and say, yes, this is true of me. I believe Then you fulfill the conditions of being part of God's church. You don't get to be a member of God's church because you have mastered something that you need to do. No. You become a member of God's church because you believe in what was done for you. If you get that right, (laughs) you're it. That's the astonishing thing that Peter lays down here. He says, this is how God is doing it. This is how it's going to go from here on. Faith, belief. And so our little membership form, if it's read the right way, states this. Having received Christ as my Saviour and trusting him as Lord of my life, I commit to all these things. Don't discount that line. Maybe we should make it bigger. <laughs> Maybe we should underline it. But that's really what it boils down to. You understand who Jesus is. If you understand what was done for you, if you're interested in wanting to get to know God through that, membership is for you. To this church and to any other church for that matter. If you're not sure, Sit on it. Wait on it. Don't feel pressured. Don't feel rushed. Work with Jesus. Let him help you. Let him give you the faith that you need. He's promised to do so for anyone and everyone who asks for it. And I'll ask for it in the end of this message, in fact. Okay, that's the biggest point by far, as far as the response is concerned here. We've, we've talked about unity, authority, faith. The next two will be pretty quick. You might say, I'm really unsure about all this stuff. Surely it's too easy. Surely, surely there's got to be more. It's like the room in Acts chapter 15, anticipated that question. So they do two more things. Peter stops talking. It's now Barnabas and Paul. And they tell that entire gathering in Jerusalem about all the signs and wonders that God had done on their journeys that we've been working through over the last few weeks. If you doubt that God is real, look around you. Look around you. I had the most astonishing conversation with Anna, our daughter, the other day. 
You said to us during a time of talking about God, every day we do a little bit of that. You said to Dana me, and she's been saying that quite often, I don't really know if God is real. As much as a seven-year-old can grapple with these things, you know, and she's thankfully being quite honest with us, you know, feeling safe enough to say, I don't think God's real. But he must be real because, I'll say a name, it's a proud thing, Mrs. McCulloch, my teacher at school, believes in God. And I see in her God. This room is filled with people whose lives are a history of what God has done in their lives. And it's beyond dispute that there's been remarkable change, <laughs> remarkable intervention about how the love of God has given all manner of things. Getting over addictions, starting to love, forgiveness, uh, hope, security, uh, challenges and trials that have been endured that would never have happened if it was not for the fact that faith was part of life. And so this is never going to give you your self-personal faith, but it's like Paul and Barnabas says to that assembly in the whole of Jerusalem going, you must understand that what Peter says, that faith is enough, has credibility because we can testify of so much that has happened of people who simply believed. Look around you. You will see it if you care to look for it. Not only is there evidence, James speaks up and he quotes an Old Testament verse. He quotes, I think it's Amos, uh, the words of the prophets are in agreement with everything that's been said here. There's so much history I can do here, I won't. I'll simply say this. All of the Bible goes here. Right from the beginning, <laughs> right to the end, right to Jesus. God's plan all along was to save people through his grace by faith in Jesus. It's not a new thing. It's historic. It's all the way through the scriptures. And God willing, as we all walk with him, we will constantly see the hand of God all throughout human history, all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the story, that this is what he wanted. This is how he wanted people to be members of his church. Simple as that. Evidence is there. The scriptures bear witness to this. And now we get to the last. Last one, I think it's the last one. You're doing well. James speaks up. He brings his whole thing to a conclusion. He says, all right, let's wrap it up. And that's what he says. He says, it's my judgment. Since we've now heard all this, this is what we should do. We should write to all the Gentiles and all the people who will become Christians on the basis of believing in Jesus. This is what we should say. Abstain from food polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from the meat strangled by animals and from blood. <laughs> At some level this seems strange. They just said you don't have to obey rules. But here's some rules. Don't do this. It's, that's what struck me at reading this. What's going on here? What is it about these things that are problematic? Why them? Why not other things? Turns out there's some unique 
uniquenesses to it. Um, there's a common thread that runs all through each of them. Food polluted by idols. This is food that people would go and consume and go with me here. This is 2,000 years ago. You'd go to a temple. Uh, I don't know, maybe a bit like what we're doing. We're praying before a meal. We're saying, thank you, God, for the food you gave us. There's a connection between God as the provider of that food and the food itself. People did that with all sorts of gods and all sorts of rituals. Uh, and if you participated in it, you very kind of said, look, I honour and acknowledge the God who's being celebrated with this particular religious meal that I'm observing and participating in, right? So, so it's connected to the worship of other gods. Sexual immorality, yep, shouldn't be involved in any sexual immorality, but really this is connected to idolatry. Uh, temple prostitution, it's whacked to us, but Roman religion had a lot of prostitution going on with its worship. If you wanted your crops to be blessed, you rock up to the right God's temple, you uh, engage or pay others to engage in some prostitution on your behalf to celebrate fertility and all sorts of whacked stuff. You're not turning to God, you're turning to something else for your well-being. Strangled animals without blood being drained and the consumption of blood, all of that had to do as well with uh, the worship of other gods. It had a cultic, religious kind of things which all people kind of had to participate in in the ancient world. It's just the way it worked. And James writes to them, he says, here's the one thing that's the common denominator. None of these things will move you closer to Jesus. Your purpose in life, if you're a person of faith, is to move closer and closer and closer and closer to the living God who created you and who has a purpose for you. That's what you've got to press into. Going here to engage in temple prostitution or to go and drink blood or whatever, that's not going to move you closer to Jesus. It's going to move you further away from Jesus. Not only is it going to move you further away from Jesus, it's going to move you further away from the other people who are also together moving closer to Jesus. And so the underlying principle is don't do Whatever is not going to move you closer to Jesus and closer to the other people of Jesus. Apply that to anything in your life and you'll know what not to do and what to do. So these bullet points on this form, we believe that these are things that God will use in our lives to move us closer to Him. To move us closer to each other. That's what's driving them. It's not the checklist to say that I've earned my membership. No, I've earned my membership by faith. And here are the sorts of things that we think will move us closer. We can add more. We can take some away. But God has a plan. God has a purpose. God wants to change you. I think that's all that James is saying. So there we have it. Let me summarize and finish. God wants his church to be one. We remain one under godly authority. You're a member of God's church if you believe it. Look at the evidence, look at the scriptures, and move towards Jesus. Now let me wrap up this long sermon with this. 
I want to ask you the question, what would have happened if this is not how you became part of the church? What would it be like if it didn't work this way? I was a cricket player in high school. My cricket team sucked. <laughs> in fact, we were so bad, if you know the rules of cricket, 250 over innings on a Saturday morning, we batted first, we got bowled out, the other team scored our runs, and then we had to wait an hour for the lunch break because the people with the lunch were going to rock up and, and all that, and that's how bad we were. In fact, I was so bad, I got given out once for taking too long to get to the crease to pad up and get ready because the guys before me fell so quickly. That's how bad we were. And eventually our, our parents complained. They said, look, these boys are in the wrong league. They should play at a, a lower league where they can actually win games. Because we started to feel like losers. We were losers. Our self-esteem, our confidence, our team morale was one of shame, of being losers, and of being afraid to play the game. That is what church would be like if God did not arrange it this way. You would have to come and earn a membership to be a morally superior person that you will never be able to do. None of us. It would be a constant comparison of who is better than the other. You'd be riddled with guilt, shame, inferiority, and utterly defeated. And yet this is just not how God has worked. This verse captures it so hard. The living God that presided over Acts chapter 15 is the one who said, a time is coming and it's now when I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I am going to come. I am going to live inside of you. I am going to make the changes that I expect to see of you. I am going to give it to you. I am going to help you. This is the God who we worship. This is why God is good. This is why God is great. And this is why church is fantastic. You ought to know today that regardless of perhaps even where you're at, even if none of this message makes sense, would you see in it, and in this decision of Acts chapter 15, a good God, a God, as Andrew said, who loves you. A God who has done for you everything that needed to be done. That you may know him, that you may be satisfied by him, and that you may be changed by him into the person who he's created you to be. It's a good deal. <laughs> it's the best deal every human, any human can hope for. And it's here. It's ours. Will you reach for it today if you haven't? And will you pray with me now as I pray a prayer on behalf of all of us? Dear God, thank you that you're a good God. 
we confess there's much about you we don't get. Perhaps many questions that starts with why. But yet, we believe that we're drawn. Drawn to you, the living God. We want you. We pray that you'd give us faith. The work of God, which is giving us faith. Let us believe it. Believe it in such a way that it fundamentally alters our lives, changes us, renews us and rewrites us. Thank you that you're a God who came to make all of this possible. Generously giving, wanting to move in and having done it all for us. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.